what does God expect? I mean, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you have some sense of the fact that God's requirements of you are beyond your ability. And yet you also have some sense that he expects something of you. Paul in Romans 8 says, that's true, he does. But let me explain something first, Paul says. Before you begin to account for what you must do, first you must be aware of what you have in the gospel. Romans 8, I'll read verses 1 and 2, and then I'll skip down to verse 12. This is what Paul writes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that You would grant that we might see your good news here, that we might recognize how you have provided for us by your Spirit, and that because of that, we might walk in your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1994, I became an RUF intern. RUF is Reformed University Fellowship, our denomination's college campus ministry, and I became an intern on the campus of Texas A&M University. I knew I was going to hear that. I knew it was coming. And it was simultaneously one of the the best decisions of my life and also one of the worst decisions of my life. I received over the course of that year a persistent question that kept coming at me from students. And, And you would think that an intern with a campus ministry would get lots of different questions Things like, hey, intern, how can I become a Christian? That would be a good question, one that an intern might like to get. Or, hey, intern, what does it mean to to live a repentant life? That would be a good question, one that an intern would enjoy trying to answer. Or maybe, hey, intern, where in the Bible would I find this or that? Help me to find this in the Bible. But no, the question that I persistently got from students all through the year was this. Hey, intern, what exactly do you do? I mean, they they saw the campus minister and all that he did. They knew that he spoke at the large group Bible study every week, and they met with him, they saw him. He was very visible to them. But on this massive campus of 50,000 students, I never saw on campus students that I knew. They only saw me at, at RUF meetings and maybe at church on Sunday, and they didn't really know what I did. My work was more obscure on that big campus. And so, curious question, students are always asking the question, what do you do anyway? 
curious Christians ask that question about the Holy Spirit, don't we? I mean, we wonder, what does he do anyway? After all, the, the Father, God the Father, drew up the blueprints, we might say, of his house that he was going to build. And he said, this is how it's going to be built. And then God the Son, who was literally a carpenter, did the work. He, he poured out the sweat and the tears and the blood to accomplish the work that God the Father had designed. But what about the Spirit? What about God the Spirit? We are Trinitarian after all. We believe that God is three in one. What does the Spirit do? We know that Paul, the Apostle, had a dramatic encounter with God the Son on the road to Damascus. That gets lots of press among us Christians. But we forget that he also had an encounter with God the Holy Spirit. And it completely redefined and changed the nature of Paul's Life and the same Holy Spirit should redefine your life as well. If the Father made the plans and the Son performed the labor, then you might say that the Spirit does the follow-up work. The Spirit is the one who brings in the residents and adapts them to their new surroundings. Now, we saw over the, the course of the past few weeks that justification, that great doctrine of justification, is by grace through faith. But then what about sanctification? Is it by sweat? Is it by our own efforts? If you think that, or if you by default live in that way, then it's going to result in one of two bad things. For one, you might end up on the the, the despairing performance treadmill, not ever really able to do what you think God expects of you. Or, for two, you may end up with a smug refusal to move beyond esoteric academic theology. Those are the two things that happen. If you think that sanctification is by sweat, Paul says to us here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Do you hear that, Christian? There is therefore now no condemnation. So then, brothers and sisters, you are free to grow by grace through faith. Because of what you already have. You have the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit at work in you. And what does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit provide for you in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit provides, for one, the means of sanctification. That's what Paul says here, beginning in verse 12. He says, Brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, that is the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, Paul says, there are two means of sanctification that the Spirit provides mortification and vivification. I know, again, two more big ification words. They fit, don't they? As a Christian, you must be at work putting to death the remnants of your old nature. And you do have those remnants, you know. Paul, in this letter to the Romans, spent the first six chapters of it explaining how the justice of God's judgment against humanity should be expected. Against fallen humanity, God's just judgment 
lays itself upon us. And then there's the beauty of God's reconciling grace in the gospel. Paul spends six chapters working through those truths. And then he comes to chapter 7, and he explains, maybe you're familiar with that chapter. We didn't read it, but you may be familiar. There he explains his deep struggles as a Christian, I believe, And he explains to us the relationship between God's law, that is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which Paul now wants to obey, and yet his old nature, the flesh, doesn't want to obey that. And Paul, there's a part of him that wants to go with his old nature, so there's this struggle between the two. The law reveals and provokes and condemns his his old nature, he tells us there. And so Paul cries out, actually, at the end of verse 7, he says, Chapter 7, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Right? And that's the struggle of the Christian life. You are obligated to put the old nature to death. But you're not alone in that work. You have something. You have the Spirit. Paul says, verse 13, By the Spirit you put to death the old nature, the the deeds of the body, he says, The Spirit's indwelling presence is a necessity. Look back to verse 9. We didn't read this, but I'm going to skip back to the context of this chapter. Verse 9, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, the sinful nature, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the defining characteristic of a Christian. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're controlled by the sinful nature and you have no desire to put it to death. But the one who does have the Holy Spirit longs to put the old nature to death. And the Holy Spirit is at work in that. Paul writes to to Titus sometime later saying, the grace of God and the work of the Spirit teaches you, Christian, to say no to ungodliness. It's kind of like the spirits at work, like the white blood cells in your body. You know, in your, in your veins, you have coursing through your body white blood cells whose job it is in your body to seek and destroy viruses that would otherwise come into your body and destroy you. But because you have the white blood cells at work in your body, you, you're not even aware of their work at times. And yet they destroy the evil that's there. They don't just make it possible. They actually make it happen. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in you because you have the Holy Spirit to put to death your old nature. But He also works to bring new life to you, to vivify. Vivification. I don't know if that word is in the dictionary. Is that even a word? I'm not so sure. Vivification. The Spirit works to bring new life to you. In verse 12, again, Paul loses his train of thought. Did you notice that? Paul does this sometimes. He says... We are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to it. But then he doesn't finish what he was going to say. To whom are we debtors? To whom do we have an obligation? I think it's clear in the context here, Paul was going to say, our obligation is to the Spirit. It's to the new nature to live according to it, to bring to life what the Spirit desires. And we know from Paul's letter, again, in the context of this letter to the Romans, that there's a mindset to this, a mindset. Again, back into the chapter, verse 5 and following, Paul writes, 
those who live according to the flesh, that is the old nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So, on what do you set your mind? Now, I want to be careful here so that you understand. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is not salvation through mental discipline. Paul is not about that. It is not a matter of simply training yourself by discipline to think only constructive and happy thoughts. And therefore, then life will now be happy. That is a lie. And that is not what Paul is saying here. He is not suggesting that even remotely. He's simply saying, I think, that our engagement with the Holy Spirit is an active one. It's not a passive one. You don't just sit back in sanctification and let the Spirit do the work, although the Spirit does the work by grace. Paul says you actively engage in this work of grace that God is doing in you. You must do something. What? What must you do? Now, as legalistic-minded fallen creatures, what we want is a list, checkbox list of things to do. We want God to give us the Ten Commandments again. We'll say, well, just do those things, and then you'll be fine. But we know elsewhere in Scripture that's not what the gospel is, don't we? What must you do? The answer is simple. You must put your path, your, yourself into the path of grace. God has given us what we call the means of grace. That's a term that we use in, in our church. Many churches use that term. It's a biblical term. God has given us the means of grace, and you must put yourself in the path of grace. In other words, when you pray or read Scripture, the Holy Spirit is at work to align your mind with Him. Or when you sing the gospel here in worship, the Holy Spirit is at work to direct the thoughts of your heart, your mind, to His desires. When you participate in a baptism here, whether you're the family with the baptism or you're observing and participating in that way, the Holy Spirit is at work drawing you through your baptism years ago to follow after Him. When you come to the table, as we have this morning, when you come to the Lord's table, to the communion table, the Holy Spirit meets you there. Jesus is present, not in flesh and blood. He's present by the Spirit. And He meets you here to fill you again to give you strength and to grant you greater faith as He works in you through this simple means of grace. In other words, you can think of it this way. You are what you eat. You are what you spend time with. You become like what you engage with. That's just true. I mean, we recognize that in life for better and for worse. You know, we live in this world that's filled with virtual realities. And that's kind of interesting and fun and fascinating in so many ways, but it's such a trap. So many get so engaged in some digital world that they enter into that and they become that. Their actual life begins to reflect much of that. And that also is a lie. 
Paul says also here in this chapter that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. It's not able. But the truth of the gospel enlivens you. It gives you life. It takes time. Granted, it takes time. It's a process. But the Lord, through the means of grace, works life by His Holy Spirit in you as you put yourself in the path of grace. I had a friend in seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, whose daughter was taking violin lessons. And early on, she began to learn the fundamentals from her teacher, the fundamentals of playing the violin. And then the teacher gave her an assignment. They gave her a, 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 it was a cassette tape at the time. You know, kids don't know what that is. But it was a cassette tape at the time of a, a classical violinist playing a simple piece. And, and the, the task was to, to play that piece and try to play your violin alongside of that piece. And my friend said that for a while, the sounds that came out of the basement were just this screeching, halting, awful, you know, young girl trying to play the violin next to this beautiful piece of music. But over the course of time, as she put herself beside and alongside that music, she gradually began to learn the ropes. It's the same way here. The Holy Spirit is at work in you through the means of grace as you place yourself alongside the path to grow you in grace, to enliven your new nature. But it's not just a means to an end. The Holy Spirit provides as well the certainty of sanctification. And you have to see this. Verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And here is the certainty of sanctification. Sonship. God has adopted you as His own. It should motivate you to godliness to be a son or a daughter of God. After all, why would you want to follow this path? I mean, there are so many self-indulgent opportunities out there in this world and that are born naturally out of your own flesh and your own fallen nature. Why would you want to struggle in this way, to follow this path. Only the nature of your relationship with God can motivate you to do this because God doesn't categorize you by number. He calls you by name. If the Holy Spirit's at work in you, it means that God has adopted you to be His child. He has made you to be His son or His daughter, and that should motivate godliness. I mean, you see... Paul's reasoning here. He says, to clarify what you do receive in adoption, he actually tells us first what you don't receive. What does he say? Verse 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive that. God did not give that to you. This spirit of fear, I think, is a fear of performance. A fear of obeying God just right so that then He'll accept you. If that's the case, then you don't understand your justification, do you? That's not what God has given to you. Earlier in the letter, Paul wrote, we have been justified through faith, not we've been justified through performance. God has accepted you through faith in Christ's performance. And in adoption, you are now free from the performance trap. Now, right here, it is crucial. It is so crucial that you understand the relationship between justification on the one hand and sanctification on the other. It is so important 
that you recognize the relationship here. Sanctification stands on top of justification. Justification comes before sanctification. Always. Now, justification is that act of God's free grace. It's that great exchange, remember, where God has taken the credit for your sin and placed it upon Jesus, and He's taken the credit for Jesus' righteousness and placed it upon you. And sanctification is a work of God's grace. It's a process of the Spirit where you're growing into that grace of justification. The Westminster Confession, the larger catechism of that theological document that our denomination embraces as as a statement of our theology, the Westminster Larger Catechism is a series of of long questions and answers that are an instrument for learning theology. And back in the day, people used to memorize this thing, and it's kind of long to memorize, but it it asks a question in there, what's the difference between justification and sanctification? How do they differ? And the answer is, fascinating. I'm going to give it to you. I want to read this to you, and I want you to listen carefully. What is, how are justification and sanctification different? The answer is this. Although sanctification is inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God, in justification, imputes, that is, credits, the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, His Spirit infuses grace and enables its exercise. Now, pause for a moment. That word infuse is a dirty word in Protestant Reformed churches. The irony is it's right here in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, so the word infused means that you you actually put something into something. Kind of like a jelly donut has... You know, something infused into the inside of it. All right, so the, the reason this word is a dirty word is because back in history, before the Protestant Reformation, the idea was that God infused righteousness into people who became Christians. That's not true. And that's a big part of why the Reformers undertook the Reformation. They said, God does not do that. He does not make you righteous. He declares you to be righteous. He doesn't make you righteous when you become a Christian. That's why you see in Romans 7, Paul struggling with his old nature and his new nature. I, I want to do this, but I don't. I don't want to do this, but I do. What am, oh, God, have mercy on me. That's why Paul is struggling there, because he's not been infused with righteousness. He's been infused with grace. God has granted to him grace Enabling its exercise. Okay, the answer continues. In justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, sin is subdued. Okay? Justification equally frees all believers from the wrath and condemnation of God, and that perfectly in this life. Sanctification is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any but rather growing up to perfection. You've got to understand the difference between the two. They are inseparable from one another, and yet they are distinct. And if you confuse them, you will not grow up into anything if you live in fear of performance. A father doesn't demand fear. Rather, he loves. 
psychologists have studied these kind of things between parents and children. And, and what are the kind of the, the, the instruments of influence that a parent has over the course of a child's life? And this is not necessarily a, a Christian sort of idea, but it's just a common sense worldly picture of what we do with our kids or what they do with us. Uh, rather, you know, in the early years, as a, as a child, as an infant, and a toddler, the main influence that a parent has is physical. You know, a, a baby needs mom or dad to feed him or her, and, and if a toddler gets out of line, you can physically take them and put them back into line. So early on, it's physical. But as they grow older, 8, 9, 10 years old or so, they're getting bigger, and, and physical correction is not quite so influential, but rather intellectual becomes enormous because your 8, 9, 10-year-old they kind of think that you know everything, mom and dad, right? You can help them with their homework, whatever the subject is, and even if you don't know it, you don't necessarily tell them, you just pretend like you know it, and therefore they now think that you know, they think that you know everything, right? But by the time they become a teenager, I don't know, 14, 15, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have those yet, so I'm not quite sure when it's going to happen, maybe it's beginning to happen, but they begin to realize, now mom and dad, they don't quite know everything, but they do have the checkbook, Right? And so money becomes influential, and you got to buy them the coolest clothes and maybe a cell phone or an iPad or a car or something big like that. At some point along the way, I don't know what you do in your family, but your child expects some monetary influence. By the time they get to be 19 years old, they're off to college, and now they realize that you don't actually know anything. But you do still have the money. Somebody's got to pay the tuition, and so they keep coming back, and then... By the time they're 22, 23, they have a job. I don't know, 25, 26, maybe that is. They have a job. <laughs> and now they've got their own kind of income. They're too big to do physical, whatever, correction. They don't need your money. They know everything now. What do you do, Mom and Dad? You love them. And I mean, now at this point, for the rest of their lives, your love for them is the major influence that you have. They recognize now, in their somewhat growing maturity, they see how you have loved them and given yourself to them throughout all of their life. And you continue to, even now, even as they fall and fail, you still love them. In the same way, God has dealt with you in the gospel. He has adopted you as his own, and he continues to love you into godliness. But listen, if you're not so sure about that, the Holy Spirit's given you something else. He has provided for you something else. Now listen, you, well, we middle to upper class traditional American Christians, okay, get ready for this one because we might not be real comfortable for it, but I'm just saying, verse 16, these are not my words, okay? What does Paul write? Verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Whoosh. Oh, boy. I mean, Presbyterian churches, what do we do with that? You know? I mean, does that make you kind of uncomfortable? The Spirit Himself bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Does that feel a little too charismatic for you or something? I mean... What do you do with that? Paul is saying here that the Holy Spirit is actually real. He's not some figment of your imagination. He's not some esoteric academic theological idea out there somewhere. He actually is involved in your life. He is here, and he is a part of your life, enormously so. 
Now, some say that you can't be sure of your redemption until, well, the end of your life. Because God doesn't want you to be sure. He wants to kind of not let you take him for granted and let you hang and so that you'll obey him and do good stuff until the end. That's a lie. Paul does not know that so-called good news here. Paul says that the Holy Spirit actually bears witness that you belong to God. Verse 16, some say, I think they're right, is somewhat of an explanatory note to verse 15 before it. By the Spirit of Sonship we cry, Abba, Father. You know that term, Abba, Father. It's a term of intimacy of a child with their father. And it seems, I think, here that the Spirit's witness is at least somewhat in the way that we say that. We cry. We cry out. That word is is a word that, that indicates some intense distress, to cry out. Jesus and his disciples met a demon-possessed man at, at one point along the way who wandered along in the hillsides, crying out in distress. Bartimaeus was a blind man that Jesus met on the road into Jericho. And on the roadside, Bartimaeus was crying out to Jesus, Have mercy on me, Son of God. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he too cried out in anguish to his Father. And even here in Romans 7, chapter before, Paul cried out, What a wretched man I am. Who will save me? Father, save me from this body of death. Father, rescue me. If the Holy Spirit's at work, that's your cry too. Because the Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit. He is in you, causing you to cry out, Oh God, have mercy on me. Are you weary from the struggle? I mean, have you fallen again to the same temptation again and again and again. It's so frustrating. Oh, God, have mercy. Why do I do this? I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I know I ought to do. Oh, God, have mercy on me. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to God. And it can only lead to one place because the Holy Spirit provides as well the hope of sanctification. Verse 17. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Given the means and the certainty of sanctification, you now have two things to hope for, growth and, God, and, and glory. Growth and glory God grants to you here. Your adoption as a son or a daughter means that you now are an heir. That is, you stand to inherit something from God. And what does one do who has an heir, but he prepares that heir for receiving that future inheritance? An heir must grow in maturity and be prepared to receive that inheritance. And so Paul says that you share in the suffering of Christ. You share in his sufferings with him. You're united with Christ in even his sufferings. Again, we have to take the whole letter of Romans in context here. And in Romans 5, Paul explains a bit more of this. In Romans 5, verse 3, he says, We rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, suffering comes in a variety of forms. 
in ways. Sometimes it comes as a result of the fallen condition of the world and the people around us. Other times, many times, of course, it comes as the consequences of our own sin. Either way, by God's mysterious design, it produces growth in grace. When I was a campus minister with RUF in Georgia, one year uh, a girl began attending our meetings. She was new to our ministry and she began attending. And I learned eventually that she was on the rebound from some very bad and destructive relationships from a difficult, difficult, troubled beginning in college. She had grown up in a Christian home where she had heard the gospel. But once she was in college, she got involved with these various destructive relationships that did great harm to her and to others. And now at this point, she was repentant of that. She wanted to leave that behind, and she had found RUF, and she was struggling with the consequences of of these relationships, the harsh attacks that now she faced, and the name-calling and the refusal of some to forgive her for her own part in these things. And she wanted a deeper understanding of the mercy of God, and she came to RUF to to see if she could find that, and she began to hear it gradually in in our Bible studies, and and eventually she began to date again. She began to date a young man who was leading music for our ministry on Wednesday nights. And over the course of the next two years, I got to watch as she grew in her understanding of God's mercy to her, of His love for her, even in the suffering that she had endured. And finally, after two years, I had the great privilege of officiating her wedding to this young man. And as we stood there at the front of this big sanctuary in this church in Georgia, she's standing there dressed in the pristine white of the Bride of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. She now vowing her faithfulness to her groom she understood, maybe more clearly than most, that their vowing of faithfulness to each other was to be simply a dim reflection of God's faithfulness to them in His covenant to His children, those whom He's adopted. She would never choose at that point to endure the suffering she had again. She would never willfully cause her Savior such grief or herself such pain. And yet, oddly, she knew that through that suffering, the Holy Spirit had grown her into a maturity that she could not have imagined before. What suffering are you enduring? What suffering do you look back on in your life and recognize, I would never choose that again? But somehow, mysteriously, the Holy Spirit has been at work causing me to grow even through that. And as you grow, you see also your hope for glory. For glory. Paul says if we're his children, then we're his heirs, provided that we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's Paul talking about here? Well, he gives a glimpse of it in the rest of the chapter. I'll read a couple of verses. Verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits eagerly. And then verse 23, skip down to verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies 
For in this hope we were saved. Now, glorification is something that we're going to look more closely at in the next couple of weeks, and we'll see that it is many things. But here in Romans 8, Paul, I think, wants us to see at least that glorification is not less than physical. It's not less than physical. The glory to be revealed, the redemption of our bodies, in this hope we were saved. Now, the gospel is bigger than just you and me. Salvation is bigger than just a one-person transaction with God. It's much bigger than that. God is after something enormous. It is the coming of the very kingdom of God to make all things right. The end, listen, the end is not about cherubs with harps floating on clouds in some nebulous virtual existence somewhere. That's not heaven. That's not what Paul is calling us to see here. Rather, it's the restoration of all things. I love how Paul ties together these things so tightly. Justification is tied to sanctification, is tied to glorification. You can't have one without the others. Verse 30 is kind of the trailing end of a passage that so many Christians know so well. In verse 30, Paul says, Those whom God predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Oh, but wait a minute. Paul, you skipped something. What about sanctification? I mean, what, what about those to be sanctified? And then, listen, Paul assumes it. He's already been talking about putting off the old and putting on the new. He simply assumes it because they're so tightly tied to each other. You can't have one without the others. The gospel is for yesterday. You are justified by grace through faith. The gospel is for today. You are sanctified by grace through faith. And the gospel is for tomorrow and forever. You are glorified by grace through faith. Do you despair that you fail God too often? Do you despair that sometimes? You've forgotten that your justification is what God has granted to you and all that you already have in it. Do you cuddle too easily with idols of your own design? Is that what you do? Do you you just kind of sit back and cuddle up with your own idols because you feel that you can do that? Listen, if that's the case, then you've taken your eyes off of what the gospel has already given to you. You have the means of sanctification. You have the certainty of sanctification. You even have the hope of sanctification. Listen, You have the Spirit. Now walk in Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that You would grant that we might see and believe and trust this good news, and therefore walk in the light of this gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.